0: Right. Well, I'm kind of continuing with Bill's theme the last couple of weeks. Um, the title he gave the series was Out of Bounds, uh, Where God Works. So I want to just keep building on that theme and, and, and play around with it, maybe from a different angle, uh, or maybe even in, in some of the same ways, but look at it from a different different way. You may recognize the, the image on the screen. I've got a kind of a lengthy clip from the TV show Frasier that uh, I'll show in a minute that I think has a lot of... Um, A lot of depth to it and and looked at the idea that uh, in the middle of our own confusion and um, doubt and frustration, that more than anywhere else is where the gospel intervenes in our life and where we can really hear God speak and we can be changed. That uh, we're not changed and we're not made better in the middle of of strength or triumph, that ultimately the, the real breakthroughs come. From um, come from dark places. Um, it, it's kind of it's an inverse. It's not something we would expect. It's contrary to human nature. Um, but that's where where things things seem to happen. Uh, in the best case, C.S. Lewis hit that point in the Four Loves. If you've read that book, which is one of anything about C.S. Lewis, obviously it's worth reading. But that was uh, one that I found particularly good. He kind of started off the book with that same analogy, and he, he said. An analogy may help. Let us suppose that we are doing a mountain walk to the village, which is our home. At midday, we come to the top of a cliff, where we are in space very near it because it is just below us. We could drop a stone into it. So he's on a cliff, he's looking down, you can see home, and there it is. But as we are no cragsmen, we can't get down. So the, the, the goal in mind is, is kind of far off. So we must go a long way around, maybe five miles away. At many points during that detour, we shall statically be further from the village than we were when we sat above the cliff. But only statically. In terms of prog- progress, we shall be far nearer our baths and teas. And so I, I think what I want to keep moving with is this idea that, um, and I don't, by the way I don't like really, in terms of Christian thought, I don't like using words like goals or progress. I tend to not want to do that, but if we'll just work with the analogy that our understanding of the gospel. Oftentimes, we're closer to it when we seem furthest away. Okay, um, and so kind of keeping with, with Lewis's idea there. Um, similarly, if you follow Mockingbird Ministries at all, or if you keep you know, the writings of, of, of Paul's all, there's an idea that Simeon all put out called what he called the Nazareth principle that um, that oftentimes. Um, the best things that we're going to find come from the most unexpected places. I mean, Jesus came out of Nazareth. And, you know, the line in the New Testament: Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Um, if you're seeing Lord of the Rings, you know the the ultimate heroes come either from you know this kind of backwater redneck warrior tribe or these little bitty people. Harry Potter was the same kind of concept. This, you know, mixed blood, nobody, orphan child shows up and and kind of saves the day. And it's a concept that as humans is very, very appealing. It's not just a case of everybody cheers for the underdog. We we cheer for underdogs, uh, I think in some way connected to that idea that we want to believe. Because on some level we all feel, that we're in Nazareth. We're on those outskirts, and we want to believe that in that can, there, there can emerge some kind of triumph. I ran across a quote, and I forgot where Paul wrote this. Paul's all writing about his, his son's idea. He said, as Simeon says, in life, time after time, the best things come from the unlikeliest places. And this Nazareth principle extends to the fact that out of trouble and wounds disappointments and closed doors come often the actual breakthroughs of personal life. Um, so that's that's line. I want to be cautious. I don't. I don't want to add what he said because you know, that would be risky. Um, but in terms of the idea of breakthrough, I don't want to just leave it there. I want to know that that breakthrough is actually the place where the gospel steps in. Okay, it's not just a. And I don't think it's not just a point of of like emotional or, or psychological fulfillment, but it's actually a place where we're kind of revealed for who we are, and the gospel can step in and and say. And can speak to us in, in, a, in a specific way to, relative to our own needs and our own position in life. A couple of cases from the Bible, because I don't uh, you know, obviously I don't want to go there. The story of Joseph uh, in the Old Testament is, is famous for Joseph's line to his brothers that what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Uh, Joseph is sold into slavery, kind of as a kid. You know, he's, he's kind of a straight laced do gooder kid. His brothers resented this, they saw him off in slavery, pretend he'd been killed. Um, and, he, and after a very long and winding road, Joseph ends up in a position of power in Egypt. His brothers eventually coming to him begging for help and so that that line, and you know Gil did a class a couple of years ago on, on these one line wonders or one verse wonders in the Bible and, that, and I don't think he did that one verse but that's a good example of how we can take take one idea from scripture and, and run with it where Joseph says "You intended something for bad and God intended it for good where where in human terms, we would see this as a very dark, uncomfortable place. God actually worked through that to bring about to bring about something special. Um, Paul later goes, you know, later on in the, in the New Testament, Paul uh, rehashes that, that sentiment in, in Romans, uh, when his famous verse, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose, is Romans 8.28. Both of those are very, very famous verses. But I want to... K- keeping with, that, with this whole idea, what I wanted to say about those two passages of scripture, though, is that we don't ever want to leave it hanging and say simply that uh, God is in control and kind of put a little smiley face and a heart at the end or you know, crochet it and sell it at Cracker Barrel. <laughs> because what we've done there is we've cut off any kind of discussion about how we fit into that and, and what our role is in that. Um, and, and our role is very low, by the way. I'm not suggesting that we're steering the ship. Simply to say that if we only say, well, things are bad today, but God's got it, and leave it alone, then we forget to see that he may actually be working in the middle of the bad stuff. Because it's easy to say, well, God started it and God will finish it, but the crap in between, that's nice, um, the stuff in between, that God's not in charge of that. And, And I think if we let it hang there, that's kind of, that's the risk we run. Uh, in saying simply that God is not in control and that whatever darkness is, is is going on with us personally, um even to the point of maybe not quite mental illness but emotional despair and, and that sort of thing, we run the risk of suggesting that God is somehow not involved. but again i'm I'm going to suggest, um, keeping with Lewis's idea with this idea of a Nazareth principle, that in those darkest periods of our life where there is to use a, a phrase from um from the, the, the clip that, that Gil showed the last couple of weeks, where there's a disconnection that in, the, in, in that place where there seemingly is a great deal of disconnect between us and fill-in-the-blank, whether it's uh, family members, friends, other, other relationships, whether it's unhappiness with, with a job and, and so forth, that um, in, in all of those cases, that God, in fact, may be most at work in those places. Um, as opposed to, um, you know, a bright sunny day at the park. Not that God's not there, but that it's in the darkness that maybe He's He's most active. Any, anybody want to jump in before I turn the TV off again or have another forty and salute? <laughs> well, I'll say a little bit about the the Fraser Club. First off, um, I'm sure a lot of you have seen the show. Um, Frazier, you know, was a character from Cheers and did a brief uh, did a brief run on The Wings. In fact, Kelsey Grammer won the only actor to ever win an Emmy for three different shows, but the same character, which is kind of neat. Um, Frazier, to my mind, to be an immensely popular show. It was part of NBC's famous must-see TV run in the 1990s. Probably the deepest sitcom you're going to run across. It's very, very funny. Um, it's of slapstick and silly in its own way, a lot of physical humor, but if you're even remotely interested um, in in cultural things, um, and obviously this is not fine art, but anything culturally produced that might have something to say about the human condition, that that's the best place to go. It's um, you know, Most episodes have something that has a, a certain level of, uh, of profundity to it, and so um, I, I would recommend it to you um, on pure entertainment grounds, but on a deeper level as well. I saw some earlier. It's streaming on Netflix, so if you want to lock yourself in a room and, and waste about eight hours, you could plow through it pretty quick. Um, not that I've ever done that. Um, <laughs> but the episode here is from the eighth season, so the show's pretty well developed at this point. Um, you know, basic basic plot of the show, Fraser Crane um, has left Boston at the end of Cheers. He and his wife have divorced. He's moved back home to Seattle, and he has a radio talk show, and he is immensely successful, um, incredibly pretentious and full of himself, um, and his life is a series of little bitty frustrations and little bitty triumphs. Um, a typical episode might be he and his brother, who is in fact more pretentious than him, uh, fighting over who gets to be president of a wine club. Um, that's that's kind of where things go. In this particular episode, um, Frazier finds out that he is being given a Lifetime Achievement Award for his radio work in Seattle. Um, One of the recurring gags maybe every other season is is something happening at an award show. Um, Obviously, Frazier is somebody who puts a lot of emphasis on his career, really defines himself by this. There's something we're going to see in a second. But in this particular episode, he... um, I don't need to fast forward here, so I'm going to go ahead and do that as I talk. In this particular episode, he is... Uh, he's given a Lifetime Achievement Award, which um, he's very excited about. And the, this is, as he's prepping, making a little speech here, the night in which he is to to receive the award, some flowers arrive. There you go. Some flowers arrived from his mentor at Harvard, who says on his congratulatory note, the phrase here, he says, congratulations, you must be very proud. And the phrasing of the note, instead of, the professor saying, I'm very proud of you, congratulations. The way it's phrased kind of bothers Frazier. And it reminded me a little bit of when Gil mentioned the line, last week from A River Runs Through It, when the father says, you're a fine fisherman. And obviously there's kind of a, that, that tone of law attached to it where the son's going to say, well, uh, and I'm borrowing Gil's words, was I a bad fisherman before? Can I be a good fisherman a week from now? This whole concept kind of racks Fraser's brain a little bit. So he goes and visits his mentor, um, who is conveniently there in Seattle on sabbatical. Uh, and he wants to kind of talk this out and say, why didn't you say something different? And, and as often happens, once we start talking, the, the knot starts to unravel a little bit, and Frazier starts to despair over where he is in life uh, and, and his career. So there's two kind of chunky clips. Um, I'll fast-forward through it in a couple of spots. But um, let me show this, and we'll kind of kind of see where it takes us. We'll grab the lights. Well, hang on.
1: When I was a boy.
0: Sorry. Kidding me. There we go. Grab the lights.
1: Speculation, rather than declaration. <laughs> we both know there are no mistakes. There must have been some reason, either conscious or subconscious, that you chose these words. Fraser, I have a confession to make. Ah. My assistant broke the card. Oh. <laughs> hey, you see, when I heard you were getting an award, I asked her to send flowers with a note of congratulations. I'm afraid you've been overanalyzing. I see. <laughs> then again, Perhaps in that order to your assistant, you subconsciously communicated an emotion that you couldn't or didn't want to acknowledge. Or perhaps your subconscious assigned you meaning to the words to reflect your own self doubt. But all art is self-portraiture, and that is not the written word. However, we can only view art through the lens of our own psyche. Then there is no pure art. How would you know? i <laughs> It's so nice to know that. It really is. Thank you. Oh, I really wish we had more time to mm-hmm. talk, but I'm taking my wife out to dinner tonight. I want to pick up some flowers for the shops closed. Yes, yes, of course. This no. time, I think I'll write the card myself. Yes. <laughs> That's a good idea. Gosh, gotcha. it was great to see you again. Yes. Let's get together some evening. I like that. It's not often I get to dine with the recipient of a lifetime achievement mm-hmm. award. Please, it's just a, a trinket for a little radio show, I Oh, not that by a little I mean to minimize my achievement. I know. I know, you know. I just want to be clear. <laughs> you don't infer any meanings that aren't actually there. <laughs> what might I infer? Oh, you know, that I'm somehow dissatisfied with my work, something like that. <laughs> you also called the award a trinket. Can you imagine what I might have done with that? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a the therapist might say that I, I didn't think much of an award that they're willing to give to the likes of me. Mm, I suppose, if one were looking hard enough, one could even say your coming down here was a desperate quest for approval. Oh, well, that one's a little out there. (laughs) Major, you don't have to worry. I'm not inferring anything. Enjoy yourself this evening. I will. Because tonight is my night. Yes. So long, Professor. Goodbye. Oh, Frazier. <laughs> Frazier. what the hell is wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> yes, dear, I, I know we have reservations, but one of my former students
0: Meanwhile, the rest of the family and his friends wait at dinner. There's also a good little subplot where the father is trying to reassure his younger brother that he also is important and meaningful and accomplished. So I suppose you could look at that as well. It would be nice if I could hack this up in some way, but that's illegal.
1: Well, treasure, it's no accident that you're going through this on the day that you receive your Lifetime Achievement Award. Well, duh. <laughs> 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 As you know, men in our society commonly define themselves by their careers. Yes, I'll come to that. In fact, there's nothing I'm more proud of than my career because I, I love to help people. I always have. All right, refresh my memory. Wasn't it your mother who first sparked your interest in psychiatry? Yes, it was, you know, I, I remember the exact day. Uh, I was eight. I, I'd come home crying because one of the older boys had thrown my coffee of the fountainhead under a bus. <laughs> my mother explained to me it wasn't because he didn't like the way I walked or because I wore an ascot after school. because he didn't like himself. And at that very moment, I became a student of human behavior. It was as if someone had given me an instruction manual explaining why people acted the way they did. Not to mention a way to distance yourself from painful emotions. Oh, totally. I took a lot of grief for that ascot. (laughs) So... Uh, you were drawn to psychiatry not because you like to help people, but because you feared them. I feared them. Psychiatry gives you objectivity. Objectivity gives you emotional distance. Distance makes you feel safe. Yes, yes, correctly. But what does that got to do with me? How's your practice? Is, I don't have a practice, I have a radio show. Distance. Any children? Yes, I have a wonderful son with whom I'm very close. You live with him. He lives in Boston. <laughs> Distance. With your wife. My ex-wife. Yes, I know. Distance. Wasn't she a psychiatrist? Yes, she wants well, you to be a damn good one, too. Oh, that's a handy choice for someone who'd rather share ideas than emotions. Have you ever met Lilith? <laughs> <laughs> well, she happens to be a, a very warm and <laughs> loving woman. <laughs> any other meaningful relationships in then? As a matter of fact, what is your point? (laughs) My point is that at the age of eight, at eight, you began to use psychiatry as a way to deal with a world that scared you to death. And this Lifetime Achievement Award has made you realize that your career is finite. And once it's gone, all you'll have left is that frightened eight-year-old boy. You have no idea what you're talking about. I am not an eight-year-old. And you know
0: something else? You're not my mentor anymore. One more little bit.
1: On line one, we have Frasier Crane from Seattle. Hello, Dr. Crane. I love you, show, a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> I won't bore you with all the details of my life because you know them. Suffice to say... I'm a successful sci-fi. My problem is that in spite of the life I've built, I feel... If I'm not mistaken it was John Keats who once wrote. Stalling, deal with the feelings All right, fair enough Perhaps caller, if we reframe the issue, we can... Redefining meet. the problem, deal with the feelings uh, Let's run down the Beck Depression Institute Rediagnosing, you know what the problem is The caller feels empty, go on. Okay Last month in the New England Journal He's already read it do you know? The caller is Frasier Craig. If you did, he (laughs) did. I can suggest certain visualization techniques. He knows them already. If he knows all this, then why is he calling? He told you. Because he's empty. Keep going. uh, Sometimes it helps to to write yourself a letter. He's already got himself on the phone. (laughs) I don't know what he wants. Then why do you keep trying to bury him in psychiatric exercises? Because that's all I have! I'm sorry, Cole. I can't help you. Fraser's up next He's not here yet. What the hell am I going to do? Well, if you'll be... All right.
0: Goes on from there. Frazier arrives at the awards banquet, accepts his award, and says, Thank you for honoring my life. I just wish I knew what to do with the rest of it. And that's the end of the episode. Um, not a real family friendly hallmark kind of wrap up to the show, um, but but there you go. Any, any initial thoughts on all that?
1: Along with, I guess, the
0: Oh, yeah. um, How so? I didn't hear it.
1: Oh, but he talked about resume building.
0: Right. And- I think when Paul talks, and, well, what was the passage, the, the New Testament reading? 2
1: Corinthians
0: 5. Okay. I, I think in Philippians, where Paul talks about counting everything lost. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I, and I heard that, and I've, I've talked about this before. I think so often you hear those, those verses, and a lot of people tend to think, well, what that really means is if you believe in Jesus, you need to sell all your stuff and go live in a bad neighborhood. And it may. You know, I've got friends and family who've done that, getting ready to move halfway around the world, and, and I know that that can happen. I think more often than not, what that's what it means is Paul had to look back on everything he built for himself and chalk that up to being worthless, at least in an eternal sense. That it had some temporary merit, maybe sure. I mean, it had helped that Paul was a pretty smart guy and he'd had a good education, but then he had yeah he had to chalk that up and say you know what. It, that's finite. That's not going to last. And if something happens where it is effectively over, yeah. Because that's, pro- that's, you know, that's, that's Frazier's problem, which for all of his quirks, that's all of our problems in that there's something in our life that we want desperately to value. And we come to find out that as close as we've held it, we're disconnected even from that. That it can't, it can't connect to us the way we want it to. You know, we, want to, we want to meet it halfway, whether it's a career or a family or whatever. We want to meet it halfway and hope that the pieces somehow fit. And, and what, what we, we'll find out eventually is that they don't. They may come really, really close, but they don't quite connect in the way we want them to. I think it's in, in, it's in those moments. And it, you know, really, I think there's a dangerous thing well, it's in, a, in a fleeting moment, but more so in like a period of life or in real churchy terms, what we might call a season. Um, in those times, that's when the gospel is probably screaming at us the, the loudest, um, and, and hopefully that's the point where, kind of in a Damascus Road kind of moment, it actually invades our life and crashes in and says, "We're going to fix this." Because he says to himself, he has to say to the caller, "says I can't help you," and you know, the gospel screaming, "I can help you," in a way that nothing else can. And, and in that sense, that's where we see that, that God works you know, in, in the middle of what is not a good moment., you know, sitting in a hallway in a college saying, you know, ",What's wrong with me?" Um, the, the gospel is actually really, really close at that point. God is right next to him. Um, Francis Schaefer wrote a book back in the '70s. he called "He is not there. He is there, and he is not silent." And it kind of dealt with some other issues theologically, but I mean, that's a great line. God is absolutely not silent, ever. Um, my criticism of kind of the Cracker Barrel Christianity was, I like that line, um, Cracker Barrel Christianity was that, you know, we can say, well, everything happens for a reason, or God's in control, and again, we forget that, you know, it's like, well, he wrote it and he'll finish it, but all the in-between stuff. It's like, no, he's He's right next to that. Um, you know, He's and all of that frustration that Fraser deals with, that we deal with in our own way, He's right in the middle of that mess. When we sing at Christmas that that he came down from heaven to, he he didn't consider himself too high to to stay away. That's a lot of what we're dealing with. It wasn't just you know know, we so often deal with Christianity in material terms, and that's the great mistake of someone like Joel Osteen is is to say that everything gets better in a material sense. No, it doesn't. I mean, any fool can tell you that. It may not more often than not, it's going to stay like it always has, where, you know, whatever your health situation, whatever your financial situation, it's probably going to stay static unless, you know, I don't know, go back to school or something. Um, Otherwise, that doesn't always change. Maybe, but no guarantees. But the other stuff, I mean, that's where God really is. He's he's in the other stuff too. He's he's there when you build a house or your house burns down, but he's he's really there in the, the personal Mess, for lack of a, a much better word, that, that we often find ourselves in. Need additional thoughts? I've got more, but I don't want to talk all day.
1: Uh, one of the things that to me uh, in that uh, clip is uh, for all of Frazier's abilities as a psychiatrist, he really had to seek out someone outside of himself to diagnose his condition and to accurately tell him what was going on and ultimately to give him the approval that he he yeah. Was seeking, and so it's sort of dealing with self-improvement in your own state, right. seeking the affirmation and from someone else. Yeah. But he was incapable of giving to himself.
0: Right. Yeah, he couldn't. He couldn't do that on his own terms. He had to have somebody else do it. I like the uncertainty of the episode. In fact, because um, Frazier doesn't get a recommendation that he go to. You know, go to Colorado for a couple of weeks and go hiking, and he'll feel better. You know, he doesn't take up a new hobby. Um, he's already got lots of those. It, it's just, it's incredibly uncertain. Um, and I don't know what the writers of the show intended, but it was, again, from a gospel-centric framework, it's really helpful that there was no suggestion made. Because whatever the suggestion was going to be made it was going to be terrible. Or it would have been temporarily fulfilling, and ultimately he'd be right back where he was because he would get tired of hiking. Or, you know, he'd get bored at the wine club. You know, and and, and in fact, that's another theme in the show, that the wine and cheese and the classical music and the antiques, all of which are nice, eventually they, he and his brother keep spinning their wheels on these things. They have to find something else. Um, but that ambivalence and that uncertainty is, is a really great moment because... There, you know, if, as the viewer, it's almost kind of jarring to watch. I mean, the first time my wife and I watched it, it just ended. You know, and it, and that, you're used to that maybe with a movie. Um, I don't know what it would have been like to watch that on whatever weeknight it originally aired, because it would have been a little unsettling. Because it does, I mean, when, when the professor is saying to him, you know, your career is finite and you've got nothing left, it, it's almost it's almost as though he's talking to the viewer as much as he is to to the character in the, in the show. Um, but I think there's a sense there for Frazier, a sense of liberation, at least temporarily, uh, where but that that outside that outside word has entered in. Um, and it's not I'm going to rip off Gill's framework as usual, and it, it's a it's not a final word, but it's maybe a word in the right direction where he says, you know, he shows him that his career is finite, um, helps Frazier see that, that he doesn't have anything else, and in at least for a moment, Fraser is completely liberated from his bondage to self-fulfillment, um, identification with his career. All of that is just, at least for a split second, lifted, uh, and. And that's, I think, what we could hope would happen in our own lives, is that we could, by God's grace, see the, the finite nature of all of those things, of, of careers, of finances, of relationships, of family even, um, as difficult as that is, to see that those things have their limitations, which is ultimately good news. And, um, when Paul Walker was here back at the Mockingbird Conference in, in um, October? Yeah, October. He had this really great line that said, If Christ isn't raised from the grave, then you're only as good as your last fill in the blank. Which is that, that would that would be Fraser's problem. If there's no triumph over sin and death, then Frazier is only as good as his lifetime achievement award. And he already sees that his lifetime achievement award is meaningless. Or he's only as good as his last relationship, and he has lots of those and they never go anywhere. And so that's what I mean that that's ultimately going to be I think not a theme it's ultimately going to be our our own our own hope as, as believers and that's ultimately the, you know, one angle to the good news of the gospel is that we can take comfort in the fact that all of these things in our own life are finite but instead that because Christ has risen that we're not that we're not bound by those things um, I heard Nick Saban say one time he saying this to the press so maybe it's just a, a shot at the media he said your love for me is completely contingent upon what happened last Saturday, and it may change in a week. Now, I don't know if he actually believes that, but whatever coaching persona he puts on, and a lot of other coaches do this too, that's a really nice insight, and keeping with the show, it's a nice way to keep distance as well, to go ahead to establish an antagonistic relationship. It probably serves a purpose, and I'm not, I don't know that he or anybody else who says that actually believes that, but there's certainly a smidgen of truth in it. I mean, absolutely. There's this mission of truth. If, if that weren't the case, then you know Mike Shula would still be coaching in Alabama, and Tommy Tuberville would still be in Auburn. But obviously, our love for those people was not contingent on something beyond what happened on Saturdays, entirely. And you know, people may say, "Well, yeah, it was great when I knew them, when they lived in town, and I worked at his office, or whatever." But there's ultimately there's there's something hanging on there. So what that means for the person, that's, that's a really sharp insight for from Coach Saban. And I'm not saying that because I'm an alumnus. Because what he's getting at, though, and what, we could, what you take away from that is, is noting that for a coach or an athlete, there's got to be something more in your own life. I, watching the NBA playoffs, I've, I've often wondered, like, I really hope LeBron James has something meaningful in his life besides basketball. Because every morning, if you flip on ESPN, there's somebody just talking about what a horrible thing he's done the night before. Um, there should be, like, a whole class. Do you know who Stephen A. Smith is? On Sports Center, um, very, very look him up. Cause once you see him one time, you'll never forget. I mean, Stephen A. Smith, um, this is Sports Writer of Philadelphia. He's on um, First Take. on he's introduce you all the time. That's the voice of the law in my own mind. Just,
1: <laughs> you know,
0: sharp guy, really intelligent, has a very um, astute way of speaking. Um, SNL's ripped on him a lot lately, and every morning. You know, he, go, he he. It's like he sets his sights on LeBron James and occasionally Dwayne Wade, and just goes right at them. And more often than not, he's actually correct in terms of pure analysis. But when he gets to it on a personal level, I mean, they're right there in the in the Frazier seat, where you better hope that there's something besides their jump shot that they can depend on in life, because that ain't working for them. And and so. Maybe that helped.
1: <laughs> he certainly played well.
0: Um, it, I mean, there's got to be something else there. I don't know. When, when Tiger Woods stopped being a bad guy, his, his golf game suffered. So I don't know how that works. He played well this weekend, so I don't know what he was doing on the side. But um, which, is a, which is an interesting point. I'm not discussing Tiger Woods' proclivities, but it, it is interesting how, how we have to, we, there is a need to find something else besides the main thing. There, there's always this need on, on, on the side. And, and, and yet, like Frazier, there's, there's going, to, going to come a point where anything we esteem too highly is going to fail us. And what we need is not, you know we can't meet that thing halfway either. What, what we have to have is, is the gospel come completely to us because we ultimately, we're not going to get there on our own. And kind of just speaking in circles at this point. That, that's ultimately the point, is that when we find ourselves in, in that Fraser position, it's never enough to pull out some kind of one-line Facebook status Christianity that says, well, God's in control. woohoo!" hoo Because it, it's simply a half-truth. It, it's something that's, that's true, but it doesn't, it doesn't help us on a day-to-day basis. But knowing that in Christ, Uh, we are loved beyond any level of human worth. We have value beyond our own understanding that we have something that is eternal, that is not temporary, that is not finite, that's not fading, um, that has seen value in us beyond what we've done at work or what we do with our own families or what our bank ledger looks like or the square footage of our home, that in that uh, we ultimately come alive. That Those are the personal breakthroughs that, that, that I mentioned earlier, is, is knowing that, which beyond that, there, there may be a door, a door to open that allows us to know, maybe see other kinds of accomplishment because we've been loved unconditionally. That doesn't mean we're going to all of a sudden turn into you know, Peyton Manning or, or we're not going to write a great novel once a year or something like that. But there's there there is this weird little area where there's there's a certain sense of contentment and maybe maybe we are better at something. Maybe, maybe. You know, I don't want to go overboard with that. Uh but that's that's I'm gonna kinda let, let that just kinda hang there. Um anything else? How do you
1: make it last? Because, um, that's a good question. In, in life, you know, there's moments where you're down or right. you go through a season and you come out of it, and it's only in retrospect you think, hey, you know what? God was probably with me in this low moment. Uh, and so this may have been a, an instance where the Holy Spirit broke in and was able to see his own true self. But I'll bet the next week he was back to the promise of self. Right. And I, uh, I'm i not going to name anybody, but perhaps myself. You know, sure. We all no, yeah. So how do you make it last? I mean, I guess you know, he has this facade of distance. and right. that We all do that.
0: Man, that's a good question.
1: <laughs> Jeez.
0: I, I don't, actually. Gil's back. So I'm, I'm done. Um, no, that's a really good question because, well, I mean, I have one of those moments about once a month, and, and my poor wife has to listen to me, you know, fuss about it after the kids go to bed. Um, I don't know, except to sound really churchy and just kind of cling to the gospel. Because I don't, I don't like churchy answers, um, I, don't, like, I don't read those Puritan prayer books that you can get, which are really nice, but on a day-to-day basis I don't really care for them, except they're true. And they're not halfway true, they're, they're true, true. Um, I think that's really your best thing, is to go back and, and read what Paul said over and over again, which I don't do, and I usually find myself in that seat periodically. And I think the only answer to that is some kind of churchy answer. and if but again, if we distinguish it between you know saccharine Christianity and actually true gut level hanging our head out the window asking what it means Christianity, there may be something about that that is a little bit more lasting because it's not you didn't come to Jesus on an emotional high, you came to him on an emotional low, which to me is seemingly different, and I, my own experience in life and I'm I'm 30 years old and I don't have a whole lot to say about you. I know that kind of doing the whole evangelical, emotional Christianity thing in high school, that thing, when we had these little went away to church camper retreats and everybody came back, woohoo, rah rah Jesus, that lasted about a week. I'm a high school teacher and I mean, I teach a lot of kids, so this isn't singling anybody out. I mean, literally, I can see kids come back on the first day of school with like Jesus bracelets and like three weeks later, like they show up on a Friday morning. They've already figured out what you figure out in college, that Thursday night's party night, and they'll show up on a Friday morning, like, you know, bloodshot eyes, they roll in about 9.30. That kind of emotional thing doesn't work. I think so, if the gospel connects to you in a low moment, something something about, to me, seems to work a little bit better. I mean, it probably helps to go to church. Read the Bible, go to small group. I don't know. Like, I really don't, and I don't think... I don't even think Paul really gets a conclusive answer. That's Juan Luther just preached the same message every Sunday. I, mean, I think Gil talked about that last week, too. There wasn't a lot of how-to. It was just, you're a sinner, and you have problems, and God loves you anyway. And he loved you so much that Jesus died on the cross to redeem your sins and make you better. Because that's all I've got, like, really. I mean, I've got nothing else to say. Um, so... That's that. I can leave it there. Thanks, y'all. I appreciate it. I'll close it. Let me close close with a prayer real quick. and we be gone? Lord, we pray at all times that the gospel would be real to us. In Christ's name, amen.